2: Hey everybody, before we get started with this episode, we have one last live show to announce for 2018. We will be in New Orleans, Louisiana at the National World War II Museum on Tuesday, November 6th. Okay, we know that's election day, (laughs) but uh, we don't want coming to
0: our show to keep you from the polls. We are both gonna vote early before we leave for New Orleans and Louisiana offers early voting as well. So we encourage you to do so.
2: You can find out more about this show and get a link to buy tickets at MissedInHistory.com slash tour. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from
1: HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is, of course, a part two of a two-parter about Charles Adams. Uh, In part one of this episode, we talked about the early life of the charming and talented Charles Adams, who went by Charlie with his friends. He started submitting cartoons to The New Yorker when he was still a teenager in art school. And by his early 20s, he was a regular contributor with a very devoted following, thanks to his odd, irreverent humor. He sometimes said he didn't think of himself as a macabre cartoonist, just a funny cartoonist. And his wit was irresistible to friends and romantic partners, as well as people who enjoyed his art. He had been married and divorced twice by the end of 1956. And though his last book had not been a huge seller, he was still considered very, very successful. Today, we are picking up right after he became a single man once again. And that was a status that he maintained for a very long time.
2: So, in the late 50s and early 60s, Charles Adams enjoyed his freedom as a successful man who was not tethered to a family. He dated a whole assortment of high-profile women, and that included Greta Garbo and Joan Fontaine. Sometimes he'd go on dates with more than one woman on a given day, and none of them overtook his life in the way that Barbara Barb had. He was also never deceitful about any of this. He was very open with the women that he was dating that he was also dating other women, and he would talk about them to one another freely. He seemed, through all of his openness, to largely avoid issues of jealousy among the various women he was dating.
0: Yeah, a lot of them were in the same social circles, which seems (laughs) very strange to me. It's kind of like the emotionally healthier version of what we talked about in the Lady Anne Blunt episode with... Her husband, Wilfred Blunt, who had relationships with a bunch of other women, but it was all very secret and yeah. cloaked in weirdness. Charlie was very open. Yeah. And, you know, everybody understood what the situation was. There was no deception or gross manipulation going on.
2: Yeah. Lady Anne Blunt's husband was also just doing all that without taking her into account in any of it, and regardless of how <laughs> she felt about it.
0: Yeah. He was hiding it from her, and then when she found out about it, it was kind of like, so what are you going to do about it? Uh, whereas... Charlie Adams was very upfront with everyone and, and really, by all accounts, uh, very open and willing to talk with any of the women in his life about how they felt about things. Uh, his relationship with Joan Fontaine did, for a little while, threaten this easy-breezy situation, though. The pair became fairly serious, and marriage was even discussed, but Charlie ultimately felt that Joan was too high-maintenance and often rude to his friends, and so he did not want a permanent relationship. Things could be kind of stormy between the two of them. He once told a friend after she had behaved particularly badly in a restaurant that he had, quote, popped her in the jaw after the two exited the scene abruptly. But the friend that he told that to was never very sure if it was a joke. And as far as the Fontaine side of it, she never said anything that would corroborate it. So we don't know if that actually happened or not, Uh, but I wanted to mention it in case anybody had questions. Uh, Eventually, that pair called it quits. Charlie felt he could never give the actress enough attention to keep her happy. In
2: 1963, a TV producer named David Levy happened to spot one of Adam's books featuring the spooky family of characters in a bookshop window, and he decided he wanted to option this book for a TV series, While the creepy Victorian cartoons had been wildly popular in the New Yorker during the 40s and 50s, they weren't really appearing regularly in the magazine by the early 60s. Yeah,
0: the Adams Family, although they were not really called that in any official capacity, was a little bit passe at that point. Um, but there had already been many pitches to Adams to try to adapt his work into other formats. But few of them gave Charlie the sense that the people doing the pitching really had the right sense of his humor and style. There was one that he did agree to, which was a ballet adaptation, but it never came to fruition. That seems a great pity because that is something I personally would just yearn to see.
2: Oh, me too. I'm very excited about that, even having ever been an idea. (laughs) I'm picturing just, like, Uncle Fester dancing,
0: and I really like it.
2: (laughs) Levy assured Adams that the unique family dynamic of the cartoons would stay in place and be respected as it was transitioned into television. And over time, Adams came to trust him on all this. They eventually struck a lucrative deal that offered Adams generous financial compensation and enough power to make decisions about the casting and staffing changes. As the show was developed, Adams started to name this whole family of ghouls. We've been using their names sometimes because that makes it make sense. But it was really now that Morticia, Gomez, Pugsley, Wednesday, Lurch, and Granny Frump finally got the names we know them by today.
0: Yeah, Granny Frump uh, had actually been named in the comics, but she was the only one. And Adams wrote these fantastic descriptions the characters and drew sketches of each of them to guide the production they were kind of like made the show bible and of morticia uh he wrote that she is the head of the family and low voiced and with a driving force that kind of keeps everything going he called her quote a ruined beauty and wednesday was described as a solemn child and pretty lost with six toes on one foot
2: pugsley was originally going to be named pubert, but the network thought that sounded like it might be something dirty. I agree with the network. <laughs> Adams described him as an energetic monster of a boy. Granny Frump had already been named in the cartoons, as Holly said earlier. She was called Grandma in the series. Quote, she has a light beard and a large mole, per Charlie's notes. She also wears a shawl on all occasions. Fester was, quote,
0: incorrigible and except for the good nature of the family and the ignorance of the police would ordinarily be under lock and key. Lurch is written up as, quote, not a very good butler, but a faithful one. And Thing actually started out a bit differently than he ended up on the series. He or she we don't really have a, a firm gender identity for thing uh, in Adams's notes, it's referred to as the thing, and he wrote quote "We don't really know who or what he is, but whatever he is the soul of good nature. at least he grins perpetually and may occasionally whimper. okay, just in case you don't know what thing is, it's a hand, so all of this grinning and whimpering is very funny." <laughs> I
2: Of Gomez, he wrote, quote, "'Husband of Morticia, if they are married at all, "'a crafty schemer, but also a jolly man in his own way.'" Gomez was also noted as, quote, "'The only one who smokes, though Pugsley can be allowed an occasional cigar.'" As a fun bit of trivia, actor John Astin was given the final choice on the name of the patriarch for this family. He was offered Rapelli or Gomez, and obviously he chose Gomez.
0: Thank goodness. Uh, John Aston was originally also not someone that Charlie Adams loved for the part because he looks very different than the way Charlie Adams drew that character, which was very round and a little more squat. But John Aston was a huge fan of Charles Adams, so uh, that ended up working out. But then Barbara Barb, his second ex-wife, got wind of this whole deal. And at that point, it became apparent that Charles Adams had really not understood the nature of the divorce settlement that he had agreed to. As you may recall from the first episode, she wanted a number of cartoons and some properties, and he felt like he was escaping a really bad marriage pretty easily. But in fact, Barb had the dramatic rights to the characters that he created. Charlie's attorney, Harriet Pilpel, who might be the subject of a future episode because she was really pretty amazing in her own right, uh, stepped in and tried to help negotiate this deal.
2: During this period, Charlie was also dating Jacqueline Kennedy, not long after her husband, John F. Kennedy, had been assassinated. She was also seeing other men, and he was seeing other women. But Charlie was becoming more and more attached to her. Eventually, the two of them separated, and the exact reason isn't clear. Charlie told friends that he wasn't rich enough for her, but told some of his closer confidants that she said they would never marry because she asked, quote, at the end of the day, what would we talk about? Cartoons? Charlie was apparently very hurt by this comment and by other moments when she seemed to dismiss him during discussions of diplomacy or politics. Yeah,
0: he was really pretty crazy about her and she, uh, you know, kind of dismissed him, which hurt, of course. As the Adams family TV show progressed, Barbara Barb continued to cause problems. She was displeased at certain clauses in the contract, and she caused a number of assorted other problems that she would just kind of come up with one complaint after another. And Harriet Pilpel tried to dispel these as best she could.
2: Finally, on Friday, September 18th, 1964, the Adams family made their television debut. Adams had mixed feelings about how the show turned out, though. John Aston was a lot more handsome than the cartoon version of Gomez, but he really loved the original cartoons, and his charm won Adams over. Carolyn Jones as Morticia pleased Adams, who had said that Morticia was his idealized woman. And Charlie loved the theme music, but he also thought this was sort of watered down and less earnestly grim than his cartoons were.
0: But he was very, very supportive of the show publicly, and he was really quite good-natured about the adaptation from his original tone. So even though there were issues that he had, he didn't grouse about it at all publicly. He drew the actors' original sketches of their characters as gifts that Christmas, and he pretty much just stayed out of the way of the production.
2: We'll talk about his life after The Adams Family became a show in just a moment, but first, we will pause for a quick sponsor break.
0: and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling, amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
0: So the Adams family took off. Charlie got a little more famous. (laughs) There are stories about people uh, driving by his house, and uh, out on Long Island where he would be outside grilling and they would start singing the theme out the window and he would just kind of give them a thumbs up and keep going. Uh, But after the second season, The Addams Family was canceled. It did okay, but it never got fantastic ratings. And even its competitor that we mentioned at the top of the first episode, uh, The Munsters, got better ratings than The Addams Family and Morticia and Gomez and their stories. But it suffered the very same fate at the exact same time. Those two shows actually ran entirely in tandem. They both opened in the, the fall uh, 1964 season. They both got canceled in 66. To make matters worse, The New Yorker had stopped taking any of Charlie's Adams Family cartoons. Uh, it was just too confusing. They felt like it being a TV thing didn't then really work right for them to keep publishing The Addams Family as a cartoon in their magazine. But Adams did sneak in references to The Addams Family in other cartoons. But really, his lucrative TV deal had made it impossible for the ghouls to continue their print life as they had been.
2: Instead, his work turned to Lilliputian-like little people and very surreal explorations of identity and expectation He was transitioning away from topics that had been very frequent in comics for a long time, including cannibals and Native peoples that had been by this point recognized as racist and were no longer being picked up by publishers.
0: Yeah, a lot of artists were coming to terms with that. Like, things that they had been drawing for literally decades were suddenly not acceptable anymore. And some of them were, you know, irritated by it. They're like, well, now I have to kind of change my whole thing, but the times were changing. Uh, In 1967, he had a chance to design his very own version of Mother Goose. In this book contract was lucrative, although once again, Barbara Barb got involved. She also insulted Charlie's attorneys as incompetent in the process. The art, though, that ended up coming out of this that Charles Adams created for the book is spectacular and it is imaginative. And I think it is some of his best. Uh, My very favorite, and it is probably the most popular, is his version of Humpty Dumpty Uh, because, as you know, the Humpty Dumpty story, he falls from the wall and cracks. But in the Charles Adams version, when the egg cracks open, there is a dinosaur that hatches out of it,
2: which takes a whole new meaning. (laughs) Uh, And I absolutely love it. Someone else entered Charles Adams' life in 1970 who had become another big part of his identity that he was crafting for interviews from that point forward. He adopted a dog, a mutt who he named Alice B. Kerr. She was allegedly named after Alice B. Toklas. His story went that he had gone to the pound several times to visit the dog, and then he took a friend with him to see her. And while the two men were there, the attendant told him, I'll tell you one thing about that dog. It doesn't like children. Adams immediately answered, I'll take it. He would follow up the story by saying that Alice would never go for the jugular, but would keep children in their place. Yeah, apparently that story of the
0: visit to the pound with his friend was that his friend was like, this dog is clearly in love with you. Like, the dog just ran up and was, like, happy and wanted to be held by him. And he was like, why don't you take this dog? And he was like, "Uh, I don't know, until the attendant said it doesn't like kids. He was like, this is my dog. (laughs) Uh, Alice became nearly his constant companion at that point. Her bad behavior was tolerated by friends who spoiled her, and she absolutely adored Charles Adams. He brought Alice everywhere with him, even in his cars when he was racing as part of his hobby. And when he traveled and left her with friends, he would write Alice postcards (laughs) and apparently call and literally be that person that's like, put my dog on the phone. He once told the press, it's just me and Alice against the world. And soon she started showing up in his work, although not as one consistent character, but pretty much any dog he drew going forward was Alice. In
2: 1971, he was walking home from a night out drinking with friends and two women accosted him on the street. They threw a liquid on him that turned out to be acid. He had to go to the emergency room for treatment and he kept his coat, which had holes in it, for the rest of his life as a memento of this... Bizarre brush with death. Yeah, he loved those acid holes in that coat.
0: Um, But even as Alice was becoming more important to Charlie, he was also realizing that a woman who had been in his life for quite some time meant more to him than ever as well. And that was T, his friend that had formerly been married to his friend, Buddy Davey. And T and Charlie had stayed friends through all of the years. As you may recall from the first episode, he had a, a brief affair with her after his second divorce. And then in 1972, their correspondence with each other really shifts and it becomes apparent that they had fallen in love. They were living apart at this point. T was in Paris primarily. She was in Europe uh, doing some work. And Charlie was living in New York. And they were not exclusive at all. They knew exactly who each other were, but they wrote these very witty and sexy letters to one another constantly, and they would tease each other about the other people in their lives. And they spoke very openly about just loving and
2: adoring one another. Once she returned from Europe, Charlie and Alice started spending more and more time at T's house. In 1974, Adams had a new will drawn up where his property would all go to Barbara Barb, but half of his estate was set aside for tea.
0: Also in the 1970s, with regime changes at The New Yorker, the idea of keeping gag writers on staff to feed cartoonists ideas was eliminated. And for a while, Adams just kept paying trusted writers out of his own pocket so that he could keep that same source of ideas going. And sometimes the magazine would instead buy sketched-out roughs for their more seasoned artists to recreate in their own style. So basically up-and-coming artists could sell a rough idea for a cartoon, but then the final cartoon would be done by one of these established names. Because Adams's work had such a distinctive tone and style, though, it was sometimes tricky to find ideas that the magazine could purchase for him to redo that were going to be the right fit for the now-legendary cartoonist.
2: Meanwhile, Barbara Barb finally filed a document that she had gotten Charles to sign almost two decades earlier, and as a consequence, she took all the possession of his property in Long Island. Charles didn't discover this until later. It became apparent in this move that she did not have any intention to return any any of the property to him, as they had discussed during the divorce.
0: Yeah, this was like a weird out-of-left-field surprise of like, oh, she suddenly filed a lot of Piece of paperwork that now put me in a really bad position. But Charles continued to maintain a friendship with Barbara Barb for the rest of his life. It befuddled virtually everyone else in his circle. It really irritated T. But he continued to leave negotiations of all Adams Family licensing and rights deals to her, including the 1973 animated series and later movie deals as they were starting to come up. Barb's company continued to issue him checks, so he felt like she was doing her job in that regard.
2: Sometimes he even accused his attorneys in New York of not working hard enough to get the best possible deals for him when they were working with entertainment lawyers. And there may have been something to that. His contract with the Adams Family TV series, for example, had no provisions for him to get any residuals. So even though the show played in reruns for years, he got no money for any of it. Barb, on the other hand, was notorious for asking for huge, even ridiculous amounts of money, but she did get much more lucrative deals for him than his other lawyers did.
0: Yeah, she sounds, uh, based on the the few accounts I read, like she was just notorious in legal circles, where they were like, if she walks in the room, just lean back, like it's coming. Um, In 1976... Uh, Charlie was driving his car when suddenly he felt nauseated, and he lost consciousness just as he pulled off the road, and he came to in the hospital, diagnosed with a bleeding ulcer from a lifetime of heavy drinking. T took care of everything for him while he was ill, but she was frustrated when the hospital dismissed her in the decision-making process as just his girlfriend. And as a consequence, as he was recovering, she really pressed Adams to get married. She knew she was not his only paramour, and she did not seem to care about that, but she wanted to make sure that she could take care of things if something happened to Charlie again. Charlie quit drinking after this episode, except for wine, but no no heavy spirits. Uh, and he kind of put tea off on the marriage issue. He still did never want to get married again.
2: In the late 1970s, the opportunity came up for the Adams family to be revived on TV again. And at this point, he was deferring to Barbara Barb on the handling of all the Adams family rights, but he was having trouble getting a hold of her. So he asked his attorney, Pilpel, to start discussing things with a studio in California.
0: Yeah, that of course led to problems down the road where uh, Barbara Barb was irritated that other people had been in those discussions. But this ended up not being a full revival. It was a reunion show for Halloween 1977. And it did come to fruition, but it did not do well. But it did make Adams about $30,000. And he was also starting to make a lot of money through gallery showings, an element of his business that his ex-wife had no control over. So he was getting all of the proceeds instead of 50% on those gallery
2: sales. We'll get to the last years of his life after another quick sponsor break. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am
0: wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
2: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Mist missed in history class, or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too.
1: The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. But what does that really mean? How will it impact me? In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. From environmental science to law enforcement, entertainment, healthcare, and travel, innovation is coming. Join us as we explore how this revolution could impact your life and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future full of possibilities in the age of 5G. This time tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Because of the reputation for dark humor that Adams had developed, sometimes there were instances where people interpreted his work in completely unintended ways. One of those happened in 1978, when a Thanksgiving cover that Adams drew for The New Yorker caused a bit of confusion. That image features a turkey farmer standing on the porch of his farmhouse. And the turkeys in the wide barnyard have formed up into military-style regiments, presumably with intent to rebel against their holiday fate. But some readers took this as a commentary on Nazi Germany because the barnyard representation was to them a little too reminiscent of concentration camps. There's also a lot of brown, which I don't know if there's like a subconscious brown shirt association going on. I don't know what the deal is, but a lot of people thought that was what it was. And he was like, no, no, it's just turkeys.
2: (laughs) Also on May 31st, 1980, Charlie and T got married in the pet cemetery at her home. Their dogs, including Alice, were attendants at the ceremony. T's college-age son was Charlie's best man, and T wore a dress made out of black velvet. Joseph Heller and Cheryl Teagues were among the guests, although a lot of the guests did not know they were going to a wedding. They thought they were just going to a party to celebrate a recent honor of Charlie's, which is an honorary PhD.
0: Yeah, he had finally realized, like, hey, it would actually be probably pretty beneficial for T to be able to handle my legal affairs because my health isn't really getting any better. Uh, he had had another ulcer situation and and some other problems arise. And also he kind of realized it was going to make her probably happy. So he just finally was like, oh, well, let's do it. And they did it very quickly. But the couple still lived the exact same lives that they had before the wedding. Charlie lived at T's house on Long Island on the weekends and then in his apartment in Manhattan during the week. But they both seemed really, really happy in this new marriage. They traveled together, they enjoyed each other's company, and T never expected Charlie to be anything but discreet about his extramarital activities.
2: Even in his later life, his work really continued to delight people. He tried to stay away from topical or trendy topics, but he did mock health food and modern marriage on occasion. When he was interviewed for a piece in the Washington Post in 1982, the article referred to him as the house haunt of the New Yorker. In the late 1980s, Charlie
0: had another ulcer scare as well as a carotid artery surgery, and his eyesight also really started to decline. He had to give up even wine. As you recall, he had given up heavier spirits before then, uh, and he started to socialize less. One of the things was that he just, if he couldn't go to a party and have a drink of any kind, He just didn't want to be around a bunch of drunk people. And T noted that after his carotid artery surgery, he really came out a much-changed man. The normally jolly Charlie had started to have grumpier days. He was still fun, but he was slowing down. And he stopped keeping the notes that he had always copiously written in his date book.
2: His dog Alice died in June of 1987, and she had been his companion for 17 years He didn't talk about it much, but he kept her inscribed food dish after that as a treasured item. This left his time in Manhattan feeling a little lonely. He wanted T to come into the city with him during the week sometimes, but she insisted on staying at the place that they moved to in Sagaponic, New York, which they nicknamed The Swamp. And although
0: he spent less and less time at his office at The New Yorker, when he was there, he was very open and willing when young cartoonists
2: came to talk to him or just get advice. On Thursday, September 29th of 1988, Charlie had a heart attack while sitting behind the wheel of his parked car just outside his New York apartment. He was taken to the emergency room immediately after he was found, but he was pronounced dead. He was 76. Later in an interview with the New York Times, T, who shared his sense of humor, said he's always been a car buff, so it was a nice way to go.
0: And he was remembered by friends as a charming man and a great friend and a really good listener. And what was really interesting is that despite his womanizing we've been talking about throughout these two episodes, most of the women in his life described him above all as their great, great friend, one of the few men in their lives who was willing to listen
2: and talk with them in a way that was not a constant effort at seduction. Everyone from Lauren Bacall to Kurt Vonnegut to Burgess Meredith mourned Adams, either in person at the services or in letters to his widow, T. Charlie's ashes were interred at the swamp in the Pet cemetery, which T. Adams had transplanted when they moved there. T. kept the location of Charlie's ashes secret for fear of fans showing up, and then when she died 14 years later, her ashes were laid to rest next to his.
0: Lee Lorenz, the New Yorker's cartoon editor in the early 1980s, once described how very surprisingly normal Charlie was to a reporter. He said, quote, he's an urbane, relaxed, congenial man of great civility. He doesn't eat babies.
2: A mural on canvas that Charlie painted in 1952 for Evera Hamptons hotel, has been quietly on display at the Pennsylvania State University Library since 2000. It was donated by an alumnus who owned the hotel at one time, but it's been sort of tucked away in this out-of-the-way area, not particularly noticed. It depicts the family of Gomez, Morticia, Uncle Fester, Lurch, Grandma Frump, and the children at the beach. Gomez is fishing and seems to have caught something. Fester is at the ready with a net. And then panicked-looking swimmers are getting out of the water. As of a few months ago, the library was in the midst of renovation plans. That was happening in July of 2018, and the mural was expected to get a more prominent place once the construction was complete.
0: So there was an update uh, to that article, which ran just last month, which was September of 2018. Uh, it has been decided that that mural is now relocated to the um, Newly renovated and renamed. It's called McKinnon's Lounge. It's on the first floor of Paterno Library at Penn State's University Park campus. So, um, since we have just passed the 30th anniversary of his death, they were putting it there as part of that celebration. Uh, So, I, I don't know the policies of that campus and if the public can go visit, but if you can and you're nearby, I highly encourage it. It's a really beautiful piece. It's huge, it's 14 feet long, it's four feet high. It is not a small piece of art at all. (laughs) Uh, And now it is in a location where you can actually view it from an appropriate vantage point for a piece of art that large. Uh, So that is Charles Adams, who I clearly adore Um, (laughs) and wish that I could travel back in time to hang out with.
2: Doesn't that sound like fun? Do you also have listener mail?
0: I do. Uh, We've gotten a number of postcards from our listener, Alice, traveling around the world. Uh, I will read one that she sent us from Vietnam. Uh, This was back in August, so I'm, like I said, still catching up with our, our postcards always. I try to keep them aside and read them when I can, and sometimes it takes a little while. She says, this postcard is coming to you from the Saigon Central Post Office, which was constructed in the late 19th century and often erroneously credited to Eiffel poor Alfred Falhu, the actual designer. Every nook and cranny of Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, has so much history and rich culture behind it. Yesterday, I walked by an unassuming building whose rooftop was featured in Hugh Vanny's iconic Fall of Saigon photo. As I am physically traveling alone, you two are keeping me company as I go on a museum, food, and coffee tour slash binge around the city. Thanks for the wonderful work you do. Alice seems like she is having, or had, I presume this tour is over, the most amazing trip imaginable. I feel like she should plan trips for other people. Like I said, we have assorted postcards, and she went fantastic and amazing places. So Alice, my hat is off to you, and thank you for sharing your travels with us. I'm glad we kind of got to go with you. That's yeah. fun. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History, and Mistinhistory.com is our website where you can check out every episode that's ever happened. Uh, there are some notes on the ones that Tracy and I have worked on together, and uh, occasionally we will also post other things. Like, that's where you can find out where all of our live shows are coming up. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever it is you Get your podcasts.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get
0: your podcasts. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck?